More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It's September 29th in 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing— it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 5,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, very excitingly, we are joined by Heather Forsyth from the Department of Biophysics and uh, Biochemistry. Sorry, the other way around, Biochemistry and Biophysics. And not only is she, um, well, usually she sits in the chair that I'm sitting in. She's usually an interviewer, um, but today she's the interviewee. Hey, Heather. Hi. How's it going? Great. You made it here dryly. Sort of. (laughs) Adrian definitely didn't. So I think you and I were the lucky ones. Yeah. I'm still wet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his jeans are two different colors front and back. So, (laughs) Um, so Heather, before we kind of dive into your research and what your lab does and get into the nitty gritty, tell us a little, give us a bit of a background, just what is a protein? Sure. What's it there for? Where is it in our body? Great. So the answer, answers shortly are that proteins are everywhere and they do everything. So... Something that people are probably more familiar with is DNA, and you are probably aware that you have DNA in every single cell in your body, but maybe um, this, obviously you're not using all of the same DNA at the same time because the, like your skin skin cells, for example, have a totally different function than the cells that make up your heart. So the way that this happens is goes back to the DNA and you have all the same DNA present, but it's the proteins that are needed for whatever region that cell is in that are made that actually do all of the work in your body. So the central dogma we talk about in biology and um, in any life science really is that uh, we go from DNA to RNA to protein. And so you all, we all start off with uh, DNA and then there's um, basically some instructions are read off of that. So they go to the DNA and they write down what is supposed to come out of that DNA and then those instructions are passed on and a protein is built. And then 
from there, the protein ends up in a specific structure for whatever function it has. And we, my lab in particular, focuses a lot on structure and function relationships of proteins. So if you think of a brick, so the function of a brick is to stack on top of itself and make a wall. So the it's important for the brick to have all flat sides so that they stack on top of each other and for it to be really strong and stable and hold things up. So if for some reason the brick has a break in it, a crack in it, or um, something is wrong with it, then it's not going to do its function correctly. Conversely, if on the other end, um, something that people we'll hear less about is a disordered protein. So not only does the structure of a protein determine its function, but also the lack of structure can determine its uh, function. So if the most structured protein is a brick, then the alternative on the other end might be a string, which could be tied in numerous different ways. It could be tied onto other things. It can be used to pull things, to lower things, et cetera. It can do make a bracelet. It it has a lot of versatility in its function. And the reality is that most proteins are, or really all proteins, I would go so far as to say, are a combination of really structured uh, brick parts of the protein and then strings tying those pieces together and allowing for the protein to move around and do whatever function it's supposed to be doing. Wow. Yes. <laughs> uh, there's a reason you're a fourth year PhD candidate. Yes. Um, you clearly know yeah. your stuff. <laughs> yeah, congrats. Um, so as you mentioned, you're in the Barbar lab. And um, so you're all looking at proteins, but you're not all looking at the same ones sure. doing the same things, right? There's right. like a diversity there. Yes, we all work on pretty different things, but a lot of the techniques that we use are similar. And um, in we use a lot of different biophysics techniques and one of them in particular tells us about structure of the protein and so people in my lab have worked on like cancer related proteins or virus related proteins motor proteins and what i have been working on is um, a protein that makes up the eye lens of the cell and is implicated in cataracts formation So before we get to your specific protein, can you give us a sense of how many proteins there are in the human body that can more or less that we produce in some way? A lot. (laughs) And the short answer is that we actually still don't know how many proteins there are. Um, So proteins are made, but then and we can kind of have a sense of what that number might be, but also proteins get modified constantly and are um, sometimes cut up into smaller pieces of themselves for, and that is, plays a role in its own function. Sometimes there are tiny, small changes, but maybe are enough to change the protein enough to where you might call it a protein, a new protein. Hmm. So the, I know that the human proteome, okay. So if you think about the human genome, that's the sum total of all of the genes that are present in the human, in any human body. Mm-hmm. So the human proteome is uh, just the sum total of all the proteins that exist in the human body. And that is estimated to be between 250,000 and 1 million. And we don't exactly know. It's a lot. There's a lot of little tiny workers all over your body moving and pulling and building. It's pretty crazy. 
And your project focused on one specific one, um, yes. which is found in the eye, and it has something to do with cataract. So before we like jump into your, I guess, in quotation marks, protein, sure. um, tell us a little about you know cataracts. How wide reaching is it? You know, how many people does it affect? Mm-hmm. So cataracts is. Uh, results from the aggregation of protein in the eye. So what that means is um, if your eye lens is made out of a whole bunch of bricks, then those have kind of fallen apart and stacked on top of each other in ways they're not supposed to. So maybe like a pile of bricks that aren't stacked. Mm -hmm. And it's listed as a priority eye disease by the World Health Organization. It's responsible for about 50% of blindness worldwide. Wow. And yes, it's the most common cause of vision loss in people over 40. And cataract removal surgery is actually the most commonly performed surgery in the United States. And so probably a lot of people have been exposed to this on some level. And um, maybe even your dog. This happens to our pets a lot also in old age. So cataracts is really, really wide reaching. And it's uh, caused ultimately by this protein called crystalline. And there's several kinds of versions of crystalline, but I'll just broadly talk about it right now. So there's Uh, Crystalline is what actually stacks up and makes your eye lens. And the what I think is just the wildest thing is when your eye forms uh, before you're born, then after your eye has totally formed, all the other cellular machinery machinery is broken down. So what that means is that you get rid of the DNA, you get rid of the nucleus, you get rid of any other proteins that would build new proteins or be involved in uh, a whole bunch of regulation, they're all gone. And the eye does that to preserve a amount of transparency so that you can actually see through this eye lens and allow light diffraction and other things. So what that means practically is that the brick wall that you have making your eye lens is made out of crystalline that's the only crystalline you're going to have your entire life. So it needs to be very, very stable because it cannot be replaced. There are some proteins that are there to sort of try and protect it or refold it if it becomes like misfolded. But for the most part, you're just kind of stuck with it, which is why something like cataracts is associated with old age because it takes a really long time for uh, things to go wrong and result in a disease like this. You had also mentioned that this protein is also in dogs. Yes. So it's also in a lot of other mammals. Tell us Correct. a little more of how it's kind of uh, tra- translated across all kinds of species and why that is. So that comes from the... So the reason we use animal models is because a lot of the proteins and processes involving these proteins are conserved through have been conserved throughout evolution from animal to animal to animal so the structure of the crystalline that makes up our eye lens is almost identical to the crystalline that makes up my dog's eye lens so uh, the tiny pieces that make up a protein are called amino acids and uh, this crystalline that i focused on is about 200 amino acids and from human to dog, there are only eight of those are different. Wow. And uh-huh. six of them are similar properties. So really only two of them are significantly different. And what that tells us is that it's really important for the protein to be as it is. Because if we change if evolution has changed it at all, it's been so unfavorable that it's been, you know, eliminated over time. 
And so we can look at, this is one way we can kind of look at regions of importance sometimes in a protein because if it's a group of amino acids that have never, ever, ever changed from fruit flies to humans, then we know that it has to be that way or it won't exist. And so you you mentioned, I mean, we technically have a way to fix cataracts, right? You have the cataract island surgery. You sure. take your old one out and replace it with an artificial one. Why continue to kind of focus on this problem? Because getting this treatment is a privilege and not many, many people in the world can't afford this because they don't have health insurance or they can't afford it because of where they are or they have other priorities. They can't afford, they can't get to it. There's no doctor nearby to take time off of work to go be able to do something like this is impossible. A number of other reasons. So it's not a, it's not something that everyone can do, which is why cataracts is still responsible for 50% of blindness. And um, so studying cataracts still, even though we have this kind of easy fix where you take take it out and replace it, could result in something that is more easily distributed and more cheaply distributed. So you could imagine like an eye drop that prevents cataracts being easily distributed throughout a like highly populated region where people are poor and don't have access to enough doctors or healthcare, et cetera. Wow. And I mean, your research is kind of fitting into hopefully, you know, getting us to a place where, yeah, an eye drop could fix cataracts. So you focus on a particular type of crystalline or particular form of it for your research, right? Yes. It's called gamma S crystalline. So there's uh, two broad classes of crystallines. Uh, One of them is the structural crystalline, which would be like the bricks making up the actual eye lens. And then there's what's called chaperone crystallines, and these kind of watch over the structural crystallines and make sure that they are acting as they are supposed to, as a chaperone would. And (laughs) they uh, help with, they might notice if the protein becomes uh, folded in a way it's not supposed to be, and they'll go in and they'll refold it and fix it. So gamma S crystalline is a structural crystalline, and it's one of the crystallines that would uh, aggregate, fall out of solution, and result in the uh, cataract formation. And the, when you say folding, this is synonymous still with like the structural integri- integrity of a brick. If Because if structure dictates function, if it's unfolded in a weird way or mm-hmm. if, if a link is missing, then these chaperone proteins would kind of help to fix that. And if it doesn't get fixed, then that's where the kind of cloudiness in the cataract starts to come in if there's enough of these kind of mistakes happening. Right. Yes. So the integrity of how these crystallines are stacked on each other and how the specific distance of how close they are to each other is really important for the way transparency and light travels through the islands. And if that's if they are closer together or farther apart or just completely aggregated to one side of the eye or something insane, I don't know. But <laughs> if they, basically there you have to be as they are. And so how did you and the Barbar Lab kind of get started on this on this research? Sure. This is a brand new project for my lab, and it was a collaboration with OHSU, uh, in particular Kirsten Lampy at OHSU. And um, we kind of got roped into it because there are these modifications that happen over time in the eye called deamidation events. 
And um, at OHSU and other researchers have kind of known for a while that this is associated with an increase in cataract formation, but why that was wasn't really obvious. And these um, modifications happen to in little disordered loops that are present in the in the protein. And my lab loves disordered proteins and disordered <laughs> regions. So uh, they my uh, my PIL is our barbar, new Kirsten, and we kind of got roped into it through this because it was thought that maybe uh, it was the because it was happened. These modifications were happening in the disordered loops that it would be changes in disordered regions or um, perhaps just that change in one tiny disordered region would impact the structural region or something like that. So it would, we were hoping that we would find something interesting and we did. I think I think it's interesting anyway. Yeah, before, I think so too. <laughs> before we get into the methods, well, maybe we should get into the methods because this is pretty crazy. You don't just look at you don't just use a microscope to look very closely at these disordered regions of the proteins to see where things are or are not working. And this method is kind of a specialty of your lab. Yes. So the method we use is called nuclear magnetic resonance, and we love it. We it's probably the one constant that everyone in our lab uses and lots of other people in my department use it as well. Um, and what it is, is a huge magnet. Uh, probably it's maybe about the height of a one story building. We have a really, really good NMR facility here at OSU. And we it's the same technology uh, as a MRI. So you put whenever you get a brain scan or something, you get put into this giant magnet. And the way that that is set up is to look at really big scales and, to, and it can do image processing immediately. And what we are doing is set up so that you can look at differences between a teeny tiny bond in an amino acid of a protein. And it allows us to look at both the structure of the protein and also uh, dynamics, which is what I focused on mostly. Wow, so really, really, really tiny stuff. Um, yes. So what specifically did you, I guess, what was your sample? Like what did you put into the NMR? Right, so we have a, we can use E. coli cells to kind of make the protein we want to look at. So we know we have the DNA that we want because the DNA codes for the proteins we want. So we have our normal protein, which is called the wild type protein. And then we have two mutant proteins that we made that we made to mimic sites of deamidation events. So uh, these are at site, they were at sites 14 and 76, and they, we can do a mutation in the DNA, give the E. coli this pro, this DNA, and it'll make a whole bunch of this protein for us. And then we have methods of purifying out the protein we want to look at. And then we put all of that protein into an NMR. And the NMR will uh, produce a spectra. It's called, uh, HSQC is maybe the most basic one that we look at and it looks if you look on the blog there's a picture of one and it looks like just a square with a ton of polka dots on it and this is sort of the fingerprint of a protein so it's really replicable and we know other people solved this structure we didn't solve this structure and people have looked at this protein by NMR so we know what it's supposed to look like we see that and then 
we can look at the mutants and see what changes occur to this spectra. And so every single dot is related to a amino acid, which is one of the tiny pieces making up the larger protein. So what this tells us is a whole bunch of stuff depending on the experiments that we do. So then from there, once you have, now that you can compare between a protein that sh that is functioning the wild type and then the two that have the deamidation, which is uh, what you've noticed that in other proteins where there is that kind of um, unfortunate circumstance where the protein doesn't fold correctly or it's not connected appropriately, uh, what were you able to infer from the slight shifts in the, the NMR? Sure. So from shifts in particular, we saw pretty slight, the shifts tell us about structural changes, and those are pretty small, which is one of the reasons this deamidation event and the why that would be involved in causing cataracts is kind of confusing because the there's not a huge structural change. So what I ended up looking, there are slight changes, but not really. And so what I ended up looking at more was the dynamics of this protein and how much it's changing. So crystalline is a really, really structure, structurally stable protein, but that doesn't mean that it's not moving. So it, so the first experiment that I did, it's called a Kleenex experiment, and it tells us about the protein's interactions with water. And so it'll point to amino acids that are moving in from a millisecond to second time scale of motion. And so usually the amino acids that would show up in this case, or I guess all the case, usually not, sorry, not usually always, then the disordered parts of the protein will show up in the Kleenex. And uh, so we see those amino acids in this experiment and we know that those are disordered and flexible. And then uh, we can also take this protein and we get rid of the water, we get rid of the hydrogen, and we add a heavier form of water called deuterium to the sample. And we can use the NMR to monitor how quickly the protein replaces, deuter replaces the hydrogens from water with deuterium. And this tells us about how solvent accessible the protein is. So if you imagined a protein as a slinky that you can pull apart and put it back together. So uh, the pulling back or maybe an accordion, the coming back and forth is kind of what the protein is doing all the time. And when it's doing that, it allows water to flow through and the parts of the protein that are more exposed to water will exchange and take in this deuterium more quickly. So this tells us about the protein motions from a from a minutes to days of motion. And some of the parts of this protein are so stable that they actually don't change over weeks of being in deuterium, which is pretty crazy. Talk about stability. Yes, it's very stable, <laughs> usually. Uh, and then the third set of experiments uh, is related to more dynamics experiments, essentially, and I put them through a modeling program, which ends up telling us about molecular tumbling of the protein. So how the how the protein is kind of tumbling around in the solution. So you could imagine that if you had a really big, oddly shaped 
thing in the water, it might tumble really, really slowly in the water. But if you had something really, really small and spherical, it might just like spin and spin and spin and spin a lot faster. So it tells us about things like that and how that tumbling is happening. And this program also will tell us information about the vibrations of the amino acid side chains. So like the branches sticking off of it kind of. And then also about uh, side chain rotations. So, and this is at a microsecond to picosecond time scale of motion. So, we did a whole bunch of it. We, me, I did these. Um, <laughs> yeah, we it did sounds a, like a lot of lab time for it you. It was a lot of lab time. <laughs> and uh, you, so ultimately, we had this time scale of, you know, days to picoseconds. And I could, I did this for the wild type normal protein and then for the mutants. And on the slower timescales, we saw changes in dynamics for both of them. But in particular, in the slower timescale, we saw more changes for one of the sites, the N76. And then uh, at the fastest timescale, we saw the most changes happening with the uh, N14 site. So ultimately... These changes were happening at different timescales, but they were happening in similar parts of the protein. So that kind of points to the fact that if both of these deamidation events are related to cataracts and they change the motions of the same parts of the protein, then those pro it's probably really, really important that that part of the protein stays as it is. And so it helps lead us to what amino acids actually matter when it comes to the unfolding of this protein and forming uh, aggregates. So with your work, you've really been able to dial in not only what area of the protein, but kind of the actual function and the time scale of which this protein can can somehow become uh, deamidized even more so that there's more aggregation, so that there's more cataracts? Uh, it's sort of more like the deamidation happens and we know that lots of deamidations happen it's not just this one that will happen to the protein so ultimately probably what is happening is a whole bunch of deamidation events are occurring they pile on and they keep changing the way this protein is moving so if it's supposed to be making a specific contact with the protein next to it it's eventually just not going to be able to do that because they're moving so differently so it, it might be like if you're in a line of people holding hands and one half of you is pulling you at a really quickly and trying to pull you away from someone else's hand, eventually you're, like, you're gonna lose that grip. Mm. And that's probably what's happening. And then whenever you lose that grip, it's gonna you're gonna grab onto something else and that might not be what you're supposed to grab onto. And then that kind of creates a cascade effect of aggregation. Yeah. And so you've been working on this research since you've, since you came to OSU, this was... This no, has this the... has been actually only over the past year. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, we should let you know, listeners, this research has just been accepted into the Journal of Biochemistry. Congratulations. Thank Heather. you. Yeah. Um, so is this kind of like the last part of your of your PhD or are you working no, on other I proteins? have other projects. <laughs> yes. I have uh, one other main project that I'm working on and maybe starting another one, but... They are still similar methods. Primarily, I want to focus on NMR and structure of proteins and how that relates to their function. And I love the dynamics experiments. I think it's really fun and interesting. So 
Uh, they are, my other project is related to a DNA binding protein. It's a totally different application broadly, but the uh, big picture of how proteins move and how they look matters. I guess if it's estimated that there's 250,000 to a million proteins in the human proteome, you shouldn't be going out of work anytime soon. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's one way to think of it. (laughs) So before before you got into science, though, you you had a pretty interesting background. You didn't immediately think when you were growing up, like, I'm going to study NMR and the dynamics on the microseconds to picosecond scale. Correct. Yes. <laughs> I thought that's every child's dream. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think I, I always loved the outdoors and maybe some like my science classes and things like that. But I grew up in a pretty conservative family that didn't like even I was taught that evolution wasn't real and climate change wasn't real, things like this. And I didn't really know any scientist. I didn't, didn't know any, any, I didn't really know anything it felt like. And then, (laughs) uh, in high school, it started to become apparent to me that my biology class and my psychology class, but the neuroscience associated with that psychology class in particular was really, really interesting to me. And I started to think about going to med school because I'm from Arkansas. And the if you're a smart kid in the deep south, then you get to be a lawyer or a doctor. And that's kind of what you should focus on. And so I was like, well, I probably won't be a lawyer, I guess. And I went to college and I had really, really good teachers in high school who encouraged me a lot and helped me to kind of make that decision. And in college, I was pre-med for almost the entire time. And I even took the MCAT. And yes, uh, (laughs) and huge mistake. That's a lot of studying to then not go to med school. (laughs) Yes, I started. So I went to college and I started doing research the summer after my freshman year. I was volunteering so because I was pre-med I was like well I have to volunteer in a hospital to get my resume perfect in four three years to be able to go and I uh, so I was volunteering in the hospital and it was a Arkansas Children's Hospital and I was just like playing with kids who were waiting for their sibling in the hospital or something and along the way like through that process they have to look at your transcript and they have to know that you're not crazy mm-hmm. or evil or something. And <laughs> I, um, so anyway, one of the volunteer organizers approached me and said that there was a doctor who was doing a research project and it was uh, on cystic fibrosis and she needed volunteers to help do the data analysis and work on this project. And it seemed like I had good grades and they knew I was interested in going to med school. So I started working on this clinical study and I worked on that uh, for on and off for the next three years, like the rest of my college time, really. And that was my first intro into research. And during that time, I started to pull away from pre-med more and more because I was loving doing the research part and not loving the shadowing the doctor part. <laughs> and Actually, can, I, can I ask you, uh, what did you think research was when you got into it? And I had no idea. It was totally new concept. I really, so I, I, 
had done a lot of research. So I got in high school, I got a international, I was in the international baccalaureate program, which is a ton of writing and a ton of research papers. And so I knew I at least loved like lit diving and like reading papers and citing sources and uh, making arguments and formulating questions. So I had an idea uh, broadly about what research was in that respect, but what that meant for a in a laboratory setting or in a medical setting was, I had no idea really. And in this case, I was doing a lot of just computer analysis. So it still wasn't like in the lab by any means. But then uh, during my, I think I was a sophomore, I started, well, okay, we're still not there yet actually. So then I was really maybe thinking, well, maybe I don't want to go to med school. Maybe I would like ecology or something like that. And so the summer after my sophomore year of college, I studied abroad, I studied abroad in Rwanda and we did a lot with gorillas and learning about them. And we learned about a lot of plants and things like this. And I had an awesome time there. And then I was also like, ecology is not for me either. <laughs> and then um, shortly after this, we had a new faculty member who had come and she was from Seattle and she did kind of molecular biology, microbiology, leaning towards biochemistry work. And my advisor was like, I feel like you two would get along. She's starting a lab. You should go talk to her. And so I was like the first, I think I was the first undergraduate working in her lab and starting, we started the lab. She started the lab and I was also there. And I just fell in love with it. It was so fun, I thought. And I was sitting in a dark room looking at translucent microscopic worms. So <laughs> I thought that was the coolest thing. And then uh, I was still pre-med though at this point in my mind. And I was like, yes, this is gonna look great on my med school application. <laughs> and uh, then the next summer I was uh, doing a backpacking trip, studying Harry Potter for my honors college thesis. <laughs> Which honestly, I feel like we could have a podcast just on that experience about. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> yes. But I, so I was alone. Were you still pre-med at this point? I was still pre-med <laughs> and like I had just taken the MCAT oh, and gosh. I, uh, anyway, but I was doing this trip and I was by myself a lot and you think a lot when you're by yourself. I went like five days at one point without even hearing my own voice. And I had this really dramatic moment where I was like sitting on a roof in Portugal and I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to go to med school at all. And so I came back and just basically threw out everything pre-med that I owned and thought and did and signed up for the GRE and I took the last, pretty much the last GRE that I could take to get into the next cycle of applying for grad school. And I didn't even, and I didn't know what I was doing. And <laughs> I was, it was very stressful. And I was talking to so many of my professors and trying to figure that out and trying to do it all. And I hadn't been preparing for this for the past three years. I'd been preparing for med school. And I, Anyway, but long story short, it worked out and yeah. I got in here and now I'm here. Now and we're here. Now we're here. Actually, before we get to here, yes. I want to ask you about there. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, you had described your, your upbringing as in a somewhat conservative background where if you were the smart kid, you were going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Sure. And you were kind of going through college with that def- predefined path in mind. Sure. And you eventually realized on this rooftop in Portugal that, you know what, this predefined path is not for me. Right. So I'm really curious to hear what your thought process was of being willing to step outside that path that you had been expected to go down because because you were, you know, the smart kid coming out of your Arkansas high school. Sure. It was kind of it was just a really long process because there was so much I didn't know. I think there was so much there was so much that I wasn't exposed to. And it was constantly like, oh, I met this person who did this and said I could do this and that's wild. And then I would like, some time would go by and I would meet this other really cool person or see this other cool thing. And I just kept learning more and more about what options are and like what that looks like. And what, uh, and med school is a, I was not wealthy by any stretch and med school is expensive, not only to, go there and pay for med school with your loans that you take out, but also just the process of taking the MCAT, taking time to study for the MCAT, being able to put in, being able to not have a job through college and put in the volunteer hours and things, et cetera, to, you know, make your resume great for med school. And grad school has some of these same problems that we can talk about, but it's a, then like the application process for med school is insane. And also the way med schools are set up is unless you go to a private med school, you're probably going into the state that you live in. So it, one of the things that occurred to me was that if I go to med school, then I'm, I'm going to med school in Arkansas and I'm going to be here for a long time. And I really didn't want that, honestly. And I, knew that I really loved, I loved the Pacific Northwest. I had only been once and I was like, this is for me. And I, the thing, the thing that's really cool about graduate school and in particular STEM graduate school is that it's probably the only higher education that will pay you to do it. And that is not sold enough because a lot of people go who make it this far and go to grad school for biochemistry or biophysics or something like that are people who have been bred for it their whole lives. And the but I I have se- I know have several friends who and this is the case for me, too, that like grad school is a way out of wherever you are. It's a way to travel. It's a way to like you go to grad school and they f- you apply to grad school and they fly you to these places. They like pay you to come to interviews. They send you to conferences. They, you know, there's a lot of like downsides and things that grad school is working on and the application process I think needs to work on, but it is a ultimately really, really cool thing. And the people you work with are always asking questions. They're always like pushing boundaries. They're always like searching for things. And I just, slowly got pulled into it, I think. And I was like, wow, this is, these are my people. And they are, here I am. <laughs> it sounds like, um, well, it's, it's pretty clear that, um, your kind of mentors in high school and, and under, and in your undergrad played a big part in kind of getting you to where you are today. So your biology and your psychology teacher in high school and your advisors in undergrad, how are you kind of translating that into your life now being the senior in your, in your lab? Yes. I try really, really hard to 
encourage the younger people who I interact with. I've TA'd almost every term that I've been here and I try to be really transparent about like, these are things that I struggled with in undergrad. These are things that I can help you with or things I can direct you to. And like, I, you know, I try to do those things and just try to exist as I am and not hide whoever that is. And I, in particular, more than one girl in my department has like come up to me specifically to thank me for being like unapologetically feminine or something like they're like thanks for liking pink openly and I was like what (laughs) I can't like the things that you don't I don't even realize uh that matter I think do I think represent representation is really important and like I am not a minority I am not I'm privileged in many ways but being transparent about the things that I can that are underrepresented and that need to be said and to not just sit back and let things happen, I think has been, uh, or I've been told by undergrads that I've mentored that that has mattered. And I try to do that. And my, in my department, we have been trying to start, or we have started this program sort of, or a work group called climate and culture and change. And we started this to address sort of the environment that we're in to make it more hospitable to diverse backgrounds. So the so some of the things we've done is like invite speakers who talk about their research, but also we'll talk about the outreach that they do in ways that we can create a more welcoming environment for women and minorities and et cetera. And um, then we did something called the Privilege Walk at a retreat. And for those who have never done it, the Privilege Walk is uh, an activity where you, you put a line down the middle of a room. Everyone lines up on this line and people will, someone will shout out if you come from a family where both of your parents went to college, take a step forward or if you are not a native English speaker, take a step backwards. And so they read off all these things and these things are things that you yourself could never control. They're all things that were just given to you by luck and chance. And, but all of them are things that have been shown to give you a leg up in uh, whatever fee, whatever thing it is. So I adjusted the traditional privilege walk to be more STEM specific whenever my department did it. And it, I think it went really, really well afterwards people had, so then afterwards you have a talk about like what it felt like to be in the back and what it felt mm-hmm. like to be in the front and what things you uh, maybe didn't think about that you are, you realize now are a privilege. And the, the thing is that it just means that like the people in the front, everyone obviously worked hard to get there, but if you're in the front, it means that if when you worked hard, you were going to be able to succeed so much easier. And people in the back may have worked hard, but there's so many other circumstances that are happening that you don't always succeed for that reason. And uh, the most recent thing we did was um, at our last retreat, we had the faculty prepare short stories and they told uh, personal stories about struggles, personal struggles that happened in grad school. And it was... I think also it went really well and grad they told the stories and some people cried and 
it was a really good bonding experience, I think. And it reminded, I think it reminded a lot of the faculty about how hard it is to be a grad student. And it allowed grad students and postdoc trainees, et cetera, to see these PIs who are so established and accomplished at this point, like to humanize them and to, you know, be able to make a, have a conversation with them about things that are difficult sometimes. So all that being said, I care about this a lot and I try as much as I can, sort of. So you yourself haven't done this, but you've really been the spearhead of a lot of these programs. Can you describe a little bit of the departmental support that you have had? Yes, it's been pretty good. So the uh, <laughs> our department head, Andy Carplus, has been pre- really supportive and has been the one to like, we'll go to him and say, this is an idea we had. And he says, yes, I will tell all the faculty they have to do this. And I will, or I will encourage them strongly to do this. <laughs> and uh, we, you know, we invited speakers. We've tried to invite increasingly more diverse speakers who diverse in uh, the traditional sense, but also in the sense of like careers, like not all of us are going to be PIs or want to be or should be PIs, but a lot of us do want to work in industry or work in a writing company. I don't know, things like that. So it's been pretty supportive, I think. Another question I had is, um, as you talk about this privilege walk, you have kind of people on multiple ends of the literal spectrum. And I, I wonder, it, no matter where you are in that spectrum, you're most likely at one point in time during your grad school career going to feel like you're an imposter. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit about like what it meant to you to find your community in grad school and that initial feeling of imposter syndrome that you may have felt at some point? Sure. Imposter syndrome, for those who don't know, is this feeling that in grad school, especially we talk about all the time where it's, you feel like you just happened like you shouldn't be in the position that you are in and you just constantly feel out of place or like you don't belong there you're going to get kicked out etc and this is a really common feeling I think for a lot of people and like for me in particular that I definitely felt like that when I first moved here and started my program because I would just tell stories that I thought were so normal and that I had always like talked about with my friends in Uh, undergrad and all of a sudden I would tell these stories and people were horrified or they (laughs) couldn't understand at all or they thought it was wild that I would ever say such a thing and it was just kind of jarring which I didn't expect because I think I had a pretty diverse group of friends in college and I've traveled a lot so to come and be to feel so out of place was really surprising to me and I have been super, super lucky, though, because I have incredible friends and my group of friends who started the program with me at the same time and some friends who I met at the start of grad school who are maybe in slightly different programs have been just instrumental to like any amount of success that I've had or feelings of inclusive, like like feelings like I could do the things that I have now done. They have always been there for me and in grad school and in general, I think that when we're all like away from our families for the most part and you sort of build your own family and 
do holidays together and you're with these people 24 seven. Like we're in lab. I was in lab before I came here and like (laughs) we, and you just talk to these people constantly and they become sort of like your life. And if they aren't supportive, then that's just a whole nother thing. But my department has been really, really, really supportive, I think. And I have awesome friends here, but also friends uh, from undergrad and other times in my life all over the workplace now who regularly check on me, who regularly encourage me. And I cannot, I would not have made it past my first year of grad school without that, for sure. And I think we also have to give a big shout out to your dog, Piper. Yes. For also. <laughs> yes. Number one, sweetie. Keeping you Piper Forsyth <laughs> is. Uh, yes, I have like, the cutest dog in the entire world also. I second that notion. Yeah, he's great. Um, so, okay, fourth year PhD candidate. You've published some of your research. You're a strong advocate for inclusivity. You're clearly, you know, really involved in in your department, but you're also really active. You like to go on adventures. So what's kind of like, what's up next in the next couple of years for you? Do you know where you want to go? <laughs> I Sorry. No, you're fine. That was a perfect reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should, we should like cut that out. No, it's fine. So I, I probably have about two-ish years left in my program. So I want to finish up for sure finish up my main project that I'm working on right now and potentially another project and where that will go is kind of could go all over the place. Sometimes you think something's going to take six months and then it takes two years. So that's how research (laughs) is. And so I, I don't know, honestly, I know what I don't want to do. I'm starting to figure out that I, I know I don't want to be a PI for example. And I don't love teaching, if I'm honest. <laughs> so I am leaning more towards science writing or uh, working for a publishing company, maybe industry. Who knows? But I've got some time here still. Yeah, luckily we still have two years of you here yes. or so in in Cor Vegas. <laughs> yes, in Cor Vegas. There's much hiking to be done. And, yeah. and by here, we also mean on inspiration dissemination as a host. So you'll get lots of <laughs> yes. lots more practice in uh, in science writing. And oh, whatnot. that's true. Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so being a longstanding host of the show, you obviously know that we have two uh, traditions um, that we do every week. So let's start it off with uh, what is your advice to whomever, younger you and older mm-hmm. you? I, mean, I don't know if that works. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody out there? Yes. So I think my advice is to say yes to opportunities. I, every t- whenever I think about, how, I'm constantly like, how did I end up doing this? How am I here? Why am I doing, like, I didn't even know what biophysics was when I started this program, really. Like, I had barely, I had, yes. So, and now I'm in a bio, primarily biophysics lab. And I there's been so many important things and experiences that I've had because I said yes to doing something at the last minute. The when you apply to grad school, there's like one day where everyone is supposed to have said yes to grad school like that day. And that's the day that I was offered this position in grad school. And I said I had like five minutes to say yes, basically. (laughs) And I, um, you know, I have so many in grad school it's really hard to take time for yourself or others or things and 
you know, you're always tired and you're always like busy and have things to, that you should be doing or could be doing and are actively doing and to take time whenever someone says, do you want to, you know, talk to me about this or will you do this? And to push yourself that much farther to do those things have been really some of the most important relationships or experiences that I've had in grad school and also in undergrad and previously. Uh, so I think that's my my advice is to go for it. <laughs> yeah, that applies to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, and our second tradition is obviously um, that our interviewee picks um, a song. And I got so excited when you told us what song you had picked and you wanted us to play. So I kind of don't want to reveal the name of it. Okay. Um, so like, can you talk about it or like why you picked it without giving it away? Because I'm just so excited to have it played. I think so. <laughs> So I, I picked this song because I love it and I love the musical it comes from. I love musicals in general and I it's about dancing and I love dancing. I danced in high school and pretty much since then it's just been on TikTok and um, <laughs> yeah, check Heather out on TikTok. She's so great. <laughs> yes. So I think that it's a great way to relieve stress or to dance around the lab and to remind yourself to have fun sometimes. So that's why I picked this song. Yes, and I'm very excited for everybody to hear it. We're going to be dancing in the studio. Great. <laughs> Heather, thank you very much. And you. Uh, we'll see you soon on the other side. Great. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>